Friends, welcome to the Slaking Thirst podcast, where you'll find the homilies, talks, and reflections of Father Ryan Mann and Father Patrick Schultz of the Diocese of Cleveland. Slaking Thirst is all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, which is also a divine heart, seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts will meet and both thirsts will be slaked. Thanks for joining us on the journey into Christ's desire for us. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him and he stayed close to the sea. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came forward. Seeing him, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him saying, My daughter is at the point of death. Please come lay your hands on her that she may get well and live. He went off with him and a large crowd followed him and pressed upon him. While he was still speaking, people from the synagogue official's house arrived and said, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher any longer? Disregarding the message that was reported, Jesus said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid, just have faith. He did not allow anyone to accompany him inside except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they arrived at the house of the synagogue official, he caught sight of a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. So he went in and said to them, why this commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they ridiculed him. Then he put them all out. He took along the child's father and mother and those who were with him and entered the room where the child was. He took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. The little girl, a child of 12, arose immediately and walked around. At that, they were utterly astounded. He gave strict orders that no one should know this and said that she should be given something to eat. The Gospel of the Lord. Good morning. I love this gospel so much. I love, uh, there's so much that, that could be unpacked or whatever, but as I was praying with it again this morning, I just, I was, I was sitting there and I was laughing. I just love the detail that after Jesus raises this girl from the dead, brings her back to life, he's like, give her a snack, you know? Like, she, she's probably hungry, you know? <laughs> I think that's, I love that we've got a Jesus who's concerned about me being, like, needing snacks. I don't know. I just really I appreciate that. All right, so um, I'm not preaching about the gospel today. I want to preach about the first reading, and I also want to talk about this, uh, this card that's in your pew. We're going to connect uh, the scriptures today to what, we're got, what we got going on in the diocese, what we got going on here at Sacred Heart with this uh, Heart of the Shepherd campaign. So that's where we're going. 
The line in the first reading that I want to zero in on is that line um, that's at the very end of our first reading today, that through the envy of the devil, death entered the world, and those who are in his possession experience it. Again, through the envy of the devil, death entered the world, and those who are in his possession experience it. So the author of wisdom is telling us, uh, he's giving us the background of what motivated Satan in his fall. Right, we all knew kind of growing up, whether it's in Catholic school or PSR or CCD class, that the, that the sin, the primary sin of Satan in um, his rebellion against God was one of pride. But what motivated it? Scripture is telling us it was envy. It was an envy that motivated it. And what's envy? Envy is different than jealousy. Jealousy can be good. Jealousy says something like, I want what you have. It could be like, I want your work ethic. You know, that's, that's a good thing. I want to be like that. Whereas envy says, I want what you have, and I don't want you to have it. And it's always and everywhere uh, evil. It's, it's, it's sinful. It's problematic. So that's what motivated this. That's what motivated this. So here's the question. Who was the devil envious of? Not God. So we kind of get this wrong. We sometimes think that, that Satan wanted to be God, and just out of envy of that, no, no, no. He wasn't envious of God. He was envious of us. He was envious of humanity. He was envious of these human creatures that God had shown the angels that in the fullness of time he was going to unfold this divine plan of humanity and that God's rapt, loving attention was fixated on humanity and the angels, these superior beings, their mission was going to be to serve and assist these lower beings, these hybrid beings, these creatures of earth and spirit. And so Lucifer, out of envy against us, just went to war against us. That he knew he couldn't go to war against God, so he went to war against the creature that God loves the most, which is us. He was envious of God's plan to divinize us. That's what we hear in the letter of 1 Peter. That God intends to unite our nature to his nature. His nature to our nature. That's the crazy fulfillment. That's the end of humanity. That's the, that's the, the, the finish line, if you will, that... As St. Athanasius said, God became man that man might become like God. Like we are literally taken up into the very heart and life and center of the Trinity. That's our destiny. And that's something that the devil couldn't stand. So he goes to war against us. Like the incarnation itself, right? The, the, in, the becoming flesh, the passion, death, resurrection, the ascension of Jesus into glory. It is just, it's proof positive. It's the full declaration of God's intention to unite our humanity to his divinity. So again, out of that envy, the devil goes to war. He launches this preemptive strike against us, against our first parents in the garden by approaching Adam and Eve with a question in order to take them captive, to take humanity captive. So the question was basically to suggest a thought into their hearts, into their minds, that God's not who they think he is, that God is a tyrant, an enemy, a, a, a rival, a competitor, that he is someone that in order to find my true liberation, my true freedom and fulfillment, I have to set up my freedom against God. That real freedom, real fulfillment is found in comparison or in contrast or in competition to God. That if I can liberate myself from the strictures of God, then I'll be free. So says the enemy. And that's the rebellion he invited us into, and hence that's the captivity he invited us into. Like the fall, from that point forward, the fall is the long, sad story of human history that humanity seeking after uh, counterfeits, things that we think will fulfill us, will satisfy us, 
only in the end to further entrench us, entrap us, enslave us. And in the end, the enemy wields his final and greatest weapon against us, which is death. Death. He is the Lord of death. We heard in the first reading, God does not make death. Death is inimical to God who is life. God did not intend death in the beginning. It was not part of his plan. So all of this, this was the sad fate of humanity. We were taken captive, gripped in the possession of one who hates us. That's what the book of wisdom is telling us. This is the horror of the bad news. In the grip of another. Parents, it's the difference between you're at like the fair and you find out all of a sudden your kid is missing at the fair, which is horrifying. That versus you found out your child was taken by somebody at the fair. It's a whole different reality. A whole different horror. We were taken captive. That was our sad fate, right? Until the moment that Scripture calls the fullness of time. That in the fullness of time... God sends his angel from the throne room of glory to bend the knee before this young virgin of Nazareth named Mary, and he kneels before, heaven kneels before this creature of earth like, and addresses her as if she's royalty. Hail, full of grace. And Mary is like the representative archetype of all humanity. She opens everything of her whole being to the Lord, says, yes, be it done unto me according to thy word. The word is made flesh And what happens in the incarnation, what happens at the Annunciation is like the rightful king has slipped into creation behind enemy lines. That's what the incarnation is. It's it's the story of the rightful king landing in disguise behind enemy lines, behind enemy-occupied territory. That's what this fallen world is. In order to reclaim this for his father, reclaim our hearts, reclaim all of fallen creation, because... Creation is not neutral. It, like, this world is not neutral. It's not neutral territory where, like, God and the angels and the devil and his demons are vying for us. Jesus and the scriptures are very clear. This world is the enemy's domain. This is the fallen world. This is the world that is enemy-occupied territory. And Jesus, as this warrior slips into this story, slips behind enemy lines to begin this campaign of sabotage. And this battle reaches this culminating fever pitch moment on Calvary, right? The enemy had been throwing everything at Jesus from the time that he was conceived to the time that he was, you know, an infant. The enemy had been launching assault against assault over and over against him, trying to destroy him. And here at the cross, this final moment, it seems as though that the battle is being favored, the war is being won in the favor of the dominion of darkness, right? As like everything seems to be going against Jesus. He's being swallowed up by the powers of sin and death and hell and darkness. And all the powers of hell are just smiling on Calvary as the angels hide their faces in horror. But he was deceived. That the enemy couldn't fathom In his darkened mind and intellect, he couldn't fathom that God would fight for us through the weapon of vulnerability and humility. He couldn't fathom that God Almighty would stoop so low. He didn't see it coming. And so, like, the trap that he had laid for Jesus 
was sprung back on him that the one who was deceived on a tree in the Garden of Gethsemane, or the Garden of Eden, was himself deceived on a tree, the tree of life on Calvary. Like, as death came to swallow him who is life, as death came to swallow him and just sunk him deep into his belly, something happened that had never happened before, that Jesus, unlike every other human soul that went down into death, didn't go down there chained and afraid and broken. He strode into death like he owned the place. That's what he's doing on Holy Saturday. You've heard me preach about this before, but that's what is happening when we say he descended into hell, he descended into the dead. That Jesus is like rushing headlong to like reclaim the possessions of this, this, this tyrant in his fortress. One of the church fathers, I think it was St. Ephraim the Syrian, who said that that Jesus came in search of a chariot upon which he could stride into death's domain. And from Mary in her humanity, he received his chariot. He received human nature. And in this, he rode into hell. And with the cross, as a sword, as a weapon, if you will, he slew the dragon. He defeated the enemy. We just sang it in the Alleluia verse. Death was defeated. This is, this, is the, this is the unbelievable good news that's at the heart of the gospel. This is what Paul was proclaiming when he was running around the, like the known world, that when death swallowed life, it couldn't hold it, and so life was vomited back out on the third day, and then everyone now who's attached to him, who is life, has life eternal. Like, are you with me? Can I get an amen? I mean, hello? Are we? Okay. All right. Hallelujah. All right. He's just like, What? <laughs> Like, this is the life-changing power of the gospel. This is the good news of Christianity. And like, like, that you and I, for reasons that we can't fathom or understand, that we mattered to God, that God looked upon us, we who were still in open rebellion against him, we who were captive and helpless and broken and lost and in this dungeon of darkness, that he came and did for us something that we couldn't even dream of asking him to do. Like, imagine a king putting on armor to go fight for a territory where his own subjects are in open rebellion against him. Like, it's an unfathomable gift. Like the psalm we just sang, the response, I will praise you, Lord, for you have rescued me. Like, I don't even think we hear what we're saying sometimes <laughs> when we're here at Mass. I will praise you, Lord, for you have rescued me. Do you know you have been rescued? Do you, good, okay, good, all right, good, all right. Yes, we've been rescued, we have been rescued, we have been rescued. Like, and Christianity is just not this, like, feel-good religion of, like, self-help promotion. It's not, like, another book on Oprah's book club. Like, our Bible, the gospel, is not just, like, just feel good about yourself. Like, this Christianity is, it's about public witness and rescue. It's the, it's the only rational response when we see like what God has done, it's the only rational response to that is, Lord, I will give you everything, you who gave me everything. And the gospel, not like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospels, the euangelion, the kerygma that we have to offer the world is that God has done something about sin and death and hell and Satan. Like the worst nightmarish things of our humanity, God has done something about it. And yes, we still die in our mortality, but death cannot hold us. We have become distasteful to death because of Jesus. 
Like Jesus has defeated it, and we don't have to live as orphans, we don't have to live as victims of the powers and the principalities that want to destroy us and make us live lives of isolated despair. God has come for you because you matter to him. Like that's the gospel. And unfortunately, I just think in, in our modern era of the church, we've done a, just a terrible job of proclaiming that to the world. Like, we have the cure for cancer, and it's Jesus. Like, why isn't the world beating down our doors? Because I don't think we're good at telling them about it. Like, we have the most incredible news We have the most incredible thing to share. Like, the church has never had the conviction. The church has never taken the approach of just like, well, let's set up shop and just let people come to us. The church has always had, from the very beginning, this missionary impulse that we we have to go out. From the ascension onward, the church has been sending out missionaries, which was never done in the ancient world before St. Paul, by the way. There was never a missionary of Zeus or a missionary of Athena They did not go around proclaiming the gospel of, like, Hermes. Didn't happen. But as when St. Paul and Jesus and the apostles, like, launched this gospel, this church, this thing, this news, this proclamation, that's when it happened. And, like, from the beginning, the church has had this impulse, bringing the gospel to people who are desperate and poor and broken and so in need of it. And we evangelize not because we, like, we want to have the most people in our pews. No, we evangelize because... Like, we are convicted that life with Christ is better. Life with Christ is better. Life with Christ is the only way that human life has meaning or sense. And like St. Paul in his day, how did he do it? He used, he utilized the Roman roads that were established during the Pax Romana, that there's road systems that connected cities. And then you had like early church fathers and early saints who were using stone and glass and sculpture and iconography to depict for the illiterate populace the story of salvation history and the mighty triumph of Jesus. And then fast forward into the so-called dark ages, you've got monks and monasteries who are illuminating manuscripts and preserving texts for the ages. You've got Gutenberg using the printing press to print the Bible. You've got, fast forward to our own day, you've got you know, preachers over the airwaves. You've got Fulton Sheen using, like, the television networks. You've got Mother Angelica establishing her own television network, which was something, by the way, that the bishops tried to do but failed, right? But she did it, which I love, right? The church in every age has always sought creative means to proclaim the gospel, to bring the life-saving message of Jesus, to bridge the gap between people's hunger and desperation and the feast that we have to offer here in the church and her sacraments to bridge the despair in the world with the hope of the gospel. And like, there is so much despair in our world for like the third, fourth, fifth year now in a row, I think, that the life expectancy in this country is going down because of what sociologists call deaths of despair. That humanity, we are literally, especially in this country, in the West, we are losing the will to live through deaths of suicide, overdose, and cirrhosis of the liver. Claiming people of, like, my generation and younger. It's tragic because people don't hear or know the hope of the gospel. We, again, we have the cure for cancer. And, like, we've got to get better at proclaiming this to the world. Because this is not about statistics. Like, it's not, it's not. It's about souls. And, like, if you want to talk about statistics, here's the math. For Jesus, 99% is not enough. 
When I was growing up, a 99 was always an A plus every day of the week. That's, that's a really good grade. For Jesus, one lost sheep is one sheep lost too many, and he's sick of having lost sheep. I'm sick of having lost sheep. There's lost sheep in your family. There's lost sheep in the city. There's lost sheep in, like, everywhere we look. People have wandered from the only source of hope, the only source of meaning, and it's Jesus Christ and his gospel. And I'm so sick. I'm so sick of us being so bad at proclaiming this gospel. And because of that, because of that just, like, frustrated restlessness in my heart and, like, Father Joe's heart, I know, like, he and I, we got together and we... Like, it was, it was because of that that we agreed to do this Heart of the Shepherd campaign. Because that the money raised by our parish, the money that's going to come back to our parish, is going to be utilized to fund this incredible, innovative new role that's never existed at our parish, and quite frankly, doesn't exist at other parishes. A director of marketing and digital evangelization that, like, all of these funds are going to be used to support this role because we've just got to get better at evangelizing. All right, so let me say a word about this Heart of the Shepherd campaign before I explode up here, okay? All right. So um, if you haven't heard about this, um, I'm not sure where you've been. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. We've been, we've been talking about it from the pulpit. There's, it's been in bulletin announcements. Father Joe's had it in his letter. But real quick, the Heart of the Shepherd campaign was launched a few years ago. It's a $30 million campaign that was initially Fully, the vision was for the diocese to, to renovate the seminary, um, which will bless our seminarians. In fact, our seminary, John, are you here? John Hawkins, where are you? Raise your hand, John. Our seminarian, John Hawkins, is here. Stand up, John. Give him a round of applause. That's our seminarian. So John and the other guys who are studying for the priesthood in the Diocese of Cleveland, we have more priests, more guys studying for the priesthood in Cleveland than any other seminary in the country, which is... Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and John's one of them. So the $20 million going to the seminary, 7 to the Priest Retirement Pension Fund, and then 3 to kind of help endow this um, student loan debt piece that, that guys who come out of, uh, who get ordained, you know, we don't have a very aggressive pay scale. I don't know if you know that. And so there's a lot of guys who have some massive student loan debt that they need help with. So anyway, so the Heart of the Shepherd campaign is designed to help with those three pieces, but also um, also the the... The money that's going to come back to us is going to be, like I said, funding this director of marketing role. And there's been a, a lot of you here who already have contributed and given unbelievable amounts. This parish is so absurdly generous. But this weekend, Father Joe and I are preaching at all the masses, inviting the entire parish to be part of this. Um, I gave my pledge last week. So, um, yeah, that's part of that uh, aggressive pay scale. So, anyway, the, uh, the target that was assigned to us by the diocese was $402,000. And um, I'm, like, blown away and overjoyed to say that here at Sacred Heart, we have uh, already far exceeded our goal. We're sitting at above $500,000, which is unbelievable. We are the talk of downtown, I'll tell you that. I'm trying to figure out what we're doing. I said, we're just putting the fun back in fundraising down in Wadsworth. So, <laughs> so um, it's absolutely incredible. So, as I've said, the portion that's coming back to us is designed to fund this director of marketing role. Because in this digital age, we need someone on staff who has the skills, technical, creative, missionary, all of those skills to help us evangelize in those spaces, that we are currently ill-equipped as a church to evangelize in the, digital sp- in the digital space. We just stink at it, to be quite honest. 
Um, and we have to get better because if we're called to be fishers of men, I don't know how to throw a net into a digital pond, but this role is going to help us do that uh, because there's people who need to know Jesus. Everyone needs to know Jesus. So, but in order to sustain this position over the next 10 years, um, in order to fund so many of the creative initiatives that I've, I've got bubbling and percolating in my mind, the goal that we have set for ourselves uh, as a parish is $600,000. If we raise that, if we hit that target, we will fully fund this position at least and easily for the next decade, um, which is, which is uh, um, amazing. So my, I just I want us to crush this goal um, just because, again, it's not, because of, it's not simply because I want to be able to say we did that, but it's because by doing that, we are equipped to do something that no other parish is equipped to do, which is to evangelize in a way that we desperately need to evangelize. So... Um, I'm going to ask that uh, we're going to walk through this real quick, um, the card that's in your pew. Uh, before you, t- if, if everyone could just grab it, one per family, and even if you have already contributed, if you'd also still please fill this out so that we have accurate you know, data for our records. Um, look at the back side of the card to take a look at what these pledges could look like. And remember, again, that this is, this is a three-year campaign. So this is what you're pledging over three years. Um, to this campaign for both the diocese and uh, our parish. So on the front side of the card, if you just go ahead and fill out all that information, parish, parish city, um, your name, your address, all of that stuff, your phone number, make sure you indicate whether that's a, a home landline or your cell phone and your email address. So fill out all that information. And on the right-hand side of the card, those five boxes at the top, Yes, amen, blessed, praying, no. Those are all indicating what you'd like to do. So um, please indicate yes if you're making a pledge today. Thank you. Check amen if you have already made a pledge to the Heart of the Shepherd campaign. Again, thank you. If you'd like to check blessed, uh, that'd be, I'd like to increase my total pledge to, you know, if you've already pledged, you want to increase it, go ahead, fill that out. The praying box is I'm thinking about my decision, and then uh, make sure you have your phone number so they can contact you. So, you know, follow up on your discernment and check no if you're unable to participate at this time, but also please give that contact information just for our records. So for those of you who are pledging today, please select one of the suggested amounts on the right-hand side. And again, we're requesting that these commitments are fulfilled over three years. So, so check the box of your desired gift. And remember, any amount that you want to give is, is perfect and amazing and like, thank you. Um, these gifts do not have to start today. You can designate when you want it to start, whether a month from now or 12 months from now or whatever you want, but make sure you indicate that date if you want it to start later. And again, if you do not have a check, your checkbook or credit card today, that's okay. Just indicate your intended pledge, and the Catholic Community Foundation will send you a letter over the next uh, several weeks to confirm your information and to set up your pledge fulfillment. Just so grateful that this parish has been just so amazingly generous with this stuff. Um, it's unbelievable. Um, and it's just, it's, it's going to equip us to do something that we, like, we desperately need to do for people. Um, so when the collection baskets come around, if you'd be so kind just to place that, or if you are giving a check, please place it all in the collection basket. It'll be sorted in the back, um, to, in, the, in the sacristy. So on behalf of Father Joe, and if I can be so bold, on behalf of the bishop, uh, Thank you. Just thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, Yeah, amen.